3. Potato, we should regard as kindling foods, but it would take a large handful of lettuce leaves, or a big cup of beef tea, or a good-sized bowl of soup, or a big cucumber, or a gallon of tea or coffee, to leave sufficient solid remains when completely dried, to make more than a flash when thrown into the fire. These, then, are paper foods, with little fuel value. Chapter I. The Coal Foods Kinds of Coal Foods There are many different kinds of coal foods, such as pork, mutton, beef, bread, corn cakes, bacon, potatoes, rice, sugar, cheese, butter, and so on. But when you come to look at them more closely, and to take them to pieces, or, as we say, analyze them, you will see that they all fall into three different kinds or classes, one proteins, such as meat, milk, fish, eggs, cheese, etc. Two starch sugars carbohydrates, found pure as laundry starch and as white sugar, also found, as starch, making up the bulk of wheat and other grains, and of potatoes, rice, peas, also found, as sugar, in honey, beetroots, sugar cane, and the sap of maple trees, three fats, found in fat meats, butter, oil, nuts, beeswax, etc. This whole class of coal foods can be recognized by the fact that usually some one of them will form the staple, or main dish, of almost any regular meal, which is generally a combination of all three classes a protein in the shape of meat, a starch sugar in the form of bread, potatoes, or rice, and a fat in the form of butter in northern climates, or of olive oil in the tropics, proteins, or meats, proteins, the first foods, there are proteins, or meats, both animal and vegetable, and no one can support life without protein in some form. This is because proteins alone contain sufficient amounts of the great element called nitrogen, which forms a large part of every portion of our bodies. This is why they are called proteins, meaning, first foods, or most necessary foods, whatever we may live on in later life. We all began on a diet of liquid meat milk, and could have survived and grown up on nothing else. Composition of proteins. Nearly all our meats are the muscle of different sorts of animals, made of a soft, reddish, animal pulp called myosin, the other principal proteins being white of egg, curd of milk, and a gummy, whitish-gray substance called gluten, found in wheat flour. This gluten is the stuff that makes the paste and dough of wheat flour sticky, so that you can paste things together with it, while that made from cornmeal or oatmeal will fall to pieces when you take it up. The jelly-like or pulp-like myosin in meat is held together by strings or threads of tough, fibrous stuff, and the more there is of this fibrous material in a particular piece or cut of meat, the tougher and less juicy it is. The thick, soft muscles, which lie close under the backbone in the small of the back, in all animals, have less of this tough and indigestible fibrous stuff in them, and cuts across them give us the well-known porterhouse, sirloin, or tenderloin steaks and the best and tenderest mutton and pork chops. Fuel value of meats. Weight for weight. Most of the butchers meats beef, pork, mutton, and veal have about the same food value, differing chiefly in the amount of fat that is mixed in with their fibers, and in certain flavoring substances, which give them, when roasted, or broiled, their special flavors. The different flavors are not of any practical importance, except in the case of mutton which some people dislike and therefore can take only occasionally, and in small amounts, the amount of fat in meats, however, is more important, and depends largely upon how well the animal has been fed, there is usually the least amount of fat in mutton, more in beef, and by far the greatest amount in pork, 
This fat adds to the fuel value of meat, but makes it a little slower of digestion, and its presence in large amounts in pork, together with the fact that it lies, not only in layers and streaks, but also mixed in between the fibers of the lean as well has caused this meat to be regarded as richer and more difficult of digestion than either beef or mutton. This, however is not quite fair to the pork, because smaller amounts of it will satisfy the appetite and furnish the body with sufficient fuel and nutrition. If it be eaten in moderate amounts and thoroughly chewed, it is a wholesome and valuable food. Veal is slightly less digestible than beef or mutton, on account of the amount of slippery gelatin and among its fibers, but if well cooked and well chewed, it is wholesome. The other meats chicken, duck, and other poultry, game, etc. are of much less nutritive value than either beef, pork, or mutton, partly because of the large amount of waste in them, in the form of bones, skin, and tendons and partly from the greater amount of water in them, but their flavors make them an agreeable change from the staple meats. Fish belongs in the same class as poultry and consists of the same muscle substance, but, as you can readily see by the way that it shrinks when dried, contains far more water and has less fuel value. Some of the richer and more solid fishes, like salmon, halibut, and mackerel, contain, in addition to their protein, considerable amounts of fat and, when dried or cured, give a rather high fuel value at moderate cost, but the peculiar flavor of fish, its large percentage of water, and the special makeup of its protein, give it a very low food value, and render it, on the whole, and desirable as a permanent staple food, races and classes who live on it as their chief meat food are not so vigorous or so healthy as those who eat also the flesh of animals, as a rule, it is not best to use fish as the main dish of a meal oftener than two or three times a week, illustration, a baby milk station the milk sold here for a few cents is perfectly clean and pure, and is variously adapted to the needs of different babies. In many cities such milk stations have been established. Milk. Milk is an interesting food of great value because it combines in itself all three of the great classes of foodstuffs. Protein, starch sugar, and fat. Its protein is a substance called casein, which forms the bulk of curds, and which, when dried and salted, is called cheese. The fat is present in little tiny globules which give milk its whitish or milky color. When milk is allowed to stand, these globules of fat, being lighter, float up to the top and form a layer which is called cream. When this cream is skimmed off and put into a churn, and shaken or beaten violently so as to break the little film with which each of these droplets is coated, they run together and form a yellow mass which we call butter. In addition to the curd and fat, milk contains also sugar, called milk sugar lactose which gives it its sweetish taste, and as a considerable part of the casein, or curd, is composed of another starch-like body, or animal starch, this makes milk quite rich in the starch-sugar group of foodstuffs, all these substances, of course, in milk are dissolved in a large amount of water, so that when milk is evaporated, or dried, it shrinks down to barely one-sixth of its former bulk, it island in fact, a liquid meat, starch-sugar, and fat in one, and that is why babies are able to live and thrive on it alone for the first six months of their lives. It is also a very valuable food for older children, though, naturally, it is not strong enough and needs to be combined with bread, puddings, meat, and fat, soups and broths, soups, broths, and beef teas are water in which meats, bones, and other scraps have been boiled. They are about 98% water and contain nothing of the meat or bones except some of their flavor, and a little gelatin, 
they have little or no nutritive or fuel value, and are really paper foods, full solely as stimulants to appetite and digestion, enabling us to swallow with relish large pieces of bread or crackers, or the potatoes, rice, pea meal, cheese, or other real foods with which they are thickened. Their food value has been greatly exaggerated, and many unfortunate invalid has literally starved on them. 95% of the food value of the meat and bones, out of which soups are made, remains at the bottom of the pot. After the soup has been poured off, the commercial extracts of meat are little better than frauds, for they contain practically nothing but flavoring matters, protein and vegetables. Several vegetable substances contain considerable amounts of protein. One of these has already been mentioned, the gluten or sticky part of bread, and this is what has given wheat its well-deserved reputation as the best of all grains out of which to make flour for human food. There is also another vegetable protein, called legumin, found in quite large amounts in dry beans and peas, but this is of limited food value, first because it is difficult of digestion, and secondly because with it, in dried peas and beans, are found a pungent oil and a bitter substance which give them their peculiar strong flavor, both of which are quite irritating to the average person's digestion. So distressing and disturbing are these flavoring substances to the civilized stomach, that, after thousands of attempts to use them more largely, it has been found that a full meal of beans once or twice a week is all that the comfort and health of the body will stand. This is really a great pity, for beans and peas are both nourishing and cheap. Nuts also contain much protein but are both difficult of digestion and expensive. Virtues and drawbacks of meats, taken all together, the proteins, or meats, are the most nutritious and wholesome single class of foods. Their chief drawback is their expense, which, in proportion to their fuel value, is greater than that of the starches. Then, on account of their attractiveness, they may be eaten at times in too large amounts. They are also somewhat more difficult to keep and preserve than are either the starches or the fats. The old idea that, when burned up in the body, they give rise to a waste products, which are either more poisonous or more difficult to get rid of than those of vegetable foods, is now regarded as having no sufficient foundation. Neither is the common belief that meats cause gout well founded. The greatest danger connected with meats is that they may become tainted, or begin to spoil, or decay, before they are used. Unfortunately, the ingenious cook has invented a great many ways of smothering or disguising, the well-marked bad taste of decayed, or spoiled, meat by spices, onions, and savory herbs, so, as a general thing, the safest plan, especially when traveling or living away from home, is to avoid as far as possible hashes, stews, and other, made, dishes containing meat, this is one of the ways in which spices and onions have got such a bad reputation for, heating the blood, or upsetting the stomach, when it is really the decayed meat which they are used to disguise that causes the trouble. Highly spiced dishes rob you of the services of your best guide to the wholesomeness of food your nose. Risks of dirty milk. The risks from tainting or spoiling are particularly great in the case of milk, partly on account of the dusty and otherwise uncleanly barns and sheds in which it is often handled and kept, and from which it is loaded with a heavy crop of bacteria at the very start and partly because the same delicateness which makes it so easily digestible for babies, makes it equally easy for germs and bacteria to grow in it and spoil, or sour, it. You all know how disagreeable the taste of spoiled milk is, and it is as dangerous as it is disagreeable. A very large share of the illnesses of babies and young children, 
particularly the diseases of stomach and bowels which are so common in hot weather, are due to the use of spoiled, dirty milk. There is one sure preventive for all these dangers, and that is absolute cleanliness from cow to customer. All the changes that take place in milk are caused by germs of various sorts, usually floating in the air, that get into it. If the milk is so handled and protected, from cow to breakfast table, that these germs cannot get into it, it will remain sweet for several days. Boards of health all over the world now are insisting upon absolutely clean barns and cleanly methods of handling, shipping, and selling milk. In most of our large cities, milkmen are not allowed to sell milk without a license, and this license is granted only after a thorough examination of their cattle, barns, and milk houses. These clean methods of handling milk cost very little, they take only time and pains. Nowadays, in the best dairies, it is required that the barns or sheds in which cows are milked shall have tight walls and roofs and good flooring, that the walls and roofs shall be kept whitewashed, and the floor be cleaned and washed before each milking, so that no germs from dust or manure can float into the milk. Then the cows are kept in a clean pasture, or dry, graveled yard, instead of a muddy barnyard, and are either brushed, or washed down with a hose before each milking, so that no dust or dirt will fall from them into the milk. The men who are to milk wash their hands thoroughly with soap and water, and put on clean white canvas or cotton overalls, jackets, and caps. As soon as the milk has been drawn into the pails, it is carried into the milk room and cooled down to a temperature of about 42 degrees that island about 10 degrees above freezing point. This is to prevent the growth of such few germs as may have got into it. In spite of all the care that has been taken, then the milk is drawn into bottles and the bottles are tightly capped by a waterproof pasteboard disc, or cover, which is not removed until the milk is brought into the house and poured into the glass, or cup, for use. Milk handled like this costs from 2 to 4 cents a quart more to produce than when drawn from a cow smeared with manure, in a dark, dirty, strong-smelling barn, by a milker with greasy clothing and dirty hands, and then labeled out into pictures in the open street giving all the dust and flies that happen to be in the neighborhood a chance to get into it, but it is doubly worth the extra price, because, besides escaping stomach and bowel troubles, you get more cream and higher food value, there is one third more food value in clean milk than in dirty milk, because its casein and sugar have not been spoiled and eaten by swarms of bacteria, how great a difference careful cleanliness of this sort can make in milk is shown by the difference in the number of bacteria that the two kinds of milk contain ordinary milk bought from the wagons in the open street, or from the cans in the stores, will contain anywhere from a million to a million and a half bacteria to the cubic centimeter about 15 drops, and samples have actually been taken and counted, which showed 5 and 6 millions. Illustration, milking by vacuum process This method is used in many large dairies to avoid handling the udders or the milk. Its chief drawback is that the long tubes are very difficult to keep clean. Such a splendid food for germs is milk and so rapidly do they grow in it, that dirty milk will actually contain more of them to the cubic inch than sewage, as it flows in the sewers, now see what a difference a little cleanliness will make, good, clean, carefully handled milk, instead of having a million, or a million and a half, bacteria, will have less than 10,000, and very clean milk may contain as low as 3 or 400, and these of harmless sorts, the whole gospel of the care of milk can be summed up in two sentences, one keep dirt and germs out of the milk, to keep the milk cool, illustration, washing the bottles at a model dairy the inside of the bottle is thoroughly cleansed by the revolving brush, 
besides the germs of the summer diseases of children, which kill more than 50,000 babies every year in the United States. Dirty milk may also contain typhoid germs and consumption germs. The typhoid germs do not come from the body of the cow, but get into the milk through its being handled by people who have, or have just recovered from, typhoid, or who are nursing patients sick with typhoid, and who have not properly washed their hands, or from washing the cans, or from watering the milk with water taken from a well or stream infected with typhoid. It is estimated that about one-eighth of all the half-million cases of typhoid that occur in the United States every year are carried through dirty milk. Illustration, danger from dipped milk The milk that spills or spatters over the hand drips back into the can and may seriously infect the main supply. The germs of consumption, or tuberculosis, that are present in milk may come from a cow that has the disease, or from consumptive human beings who handle the milk, or from the dust of streets or houses which often contains disease germs. The latter sources are far the more dangerous, for, as is now pretty generally agreed, although the tuberculosis of cattle can be given to human beings, it is not very actively dangerous to them, and probably not more than 3 or 4 percent of all cases of tuberculosis come from this source. The idea, however, of allowing the milk of cows diseased from any cause to be used for human food, is not to be tolerated for a moment. All good dairymen and energetic boards of health now insist upon dairy herds being tested for tuberculosis, and the killing, or weeding out, of all cows that show they have the disease. Illustration, milk inspection at the retail store It is well to have the quality and purity of the milk tested just before it goes to the consumer, but it is far more important that it should be examined by state inspectors at the dairy farms. Cheese, cheese is the curd of milk squeezed dry of its liquid whey. Salted pressed into a mold, and allowed to ferment slowly, or, ripen, in which process a considerable part of its casein is turned into fat. It is a cheap, concentrated, and very nutritious food, and in small amounts is quite appetizing, but unfortunately, the acids and extracts which have formed in the process of fermentation and ripening are so irritating to the stomach, that it can usually be eaten only in small amounts, without upsetting the digestion. Its chief value is as a relish with bread crackers, potatoes, or macaroni, in moderate amounts, it is not only appetizing and digestible, but will assist in the digestion of other foods, hence the custom of eating a small piece of, ripe, cheese at the end of a heavy meal, chapter V the cold foods continued starches sources of starch, the starches are valuable and wholesome foods, they form the largest part, both in bulk and in fuel value, of our diet and have done so ever since man learned how to cultivate the soil and grow crops of grain. The reason is clear, one acre of good land will grow from 10 to 15 times the amount of food in the form of starching grains or roots, as of meat in the shape of cattle or sheep. Consequently, starch is far cheaper, and this is its great advantage. Our chief supply of starch is obtained from the seed of certain most full grasses, which we call wheat, oats, barley, rye, rice, and corn and from the so-called roots of the potato. Potatoes are really underground buds packed with starch, and their proper name is tubers. Starch, when pure or extracted, is a soft, white powder, which you have often seen as cornstarch, or laundry starch, as found in grains. It is mixed with a certain amount of vegetable fiber, covered with husks, or skin, and has the little germ or budlet of the coming plant inside it. It has been manufactured and laid down by little cells inside their own bodies, 
which make up the grains, so that each particular grain of starch is surrounded by a delicate husk the wall of the cell that made it. This means that grains and other starch foods have to be prepared for eating by grinding and cooking. The grinding crushes the grains into a powder so that the starch can be sifted out from the husks and coating of the grain, and the fibers which hold it together, and the cooking causes the tiny starch grain to swell and burst the cell wall, or bag, which surrounds it. Starches as fuel. The starches contain no nitrogen except a mere trace in the framework of the grains or roots they grow in. They burn very clean, that island almost the whole of them is turned into carbon dioxide gas and water. This burning quality makes the starches a capital fuel both in the body and out of it. You may have heard of how settlers out on the prairies, who were a long way from a railroad and had no wood or coal, but plenty of corn, would fill their coal scuttles with corn and burn that in their stoves, and a very bright, hot fire it made. One of the chief weaknesses of the starches is that they burn up too fast, so that you get hungry again much more quickly after a meal made entirely upon starchy foods, like bread, crackers, potatoes, or rice, than you do after one which has contained some meat, particularly fat, which burns and digests more slowly. How starches changed into sugar, as we learned in chapter II. The starches can be digested only after they are turned into sugars in the body. If you put salt with sugar or starch, although it will mix perfectly and give its taste to the mixture, neither the salt nor the starch nor the sugar will have changed at all, but will remain exactly as it was in the first place except for being mixed with the other substances, but if you were to pour water containing an acid over the starch, and then boil it for a little time, your starch would entirely disappear, and something quite different take its place, this, when you tasted it, you would find was sweet, and, when the water was boiled off, it would turn out to be a sugar called glucose, again, if you should pour a strong acid over sawdust, it would, char, it, or change it into another substance, carbon, in both of these cases that of the starch and of the sawdust what we call a chemical change would have taken place between the acid and the starch, and between the strong acid and the sawdust. If we looked into the matter more closely, we should find that what has happened is that the starch and the sawdust have changed into quite different substances. Starches are insoluble in water, that island although they can be softened and changed into a jelly-like substance, they cannot be completely melted, or dissolved, like salt or sugar. Sugar on the other hand, is a perfectly soluble or, meltable, substance, and can soak or penetrate through any membrane or substance in the body, therefore all the starches which we eat bread, biscuit, potato, etc. have to be acted upon by the ferments of our saliva and our pancreatic juice, and turned into sugar, called glucose, which can be easily poured into the blood and carried wherever it is needed, all over the body, thus we see what a close relation there is between starch and sugar and why the group we are studying is sometimes called the starch sugars. We our most valuable starch food. The principal forms in which starch comes upon our tables are meals and flowers, and the various breads, cakes, mushes, and puddings made out of these. Far the most valuable and important of all is wheat flour, because this grain contains, as we have seen, not only starch, but a considerable amount of vegetable, meat, or gluten, which is easily digested in the stomach. This gluten, however, carries with it one disadvantage its stickiness, or gumminess. The dough or paste made by mixing wheat flour with water is heavy and wet, or, as we say, soggy, as compared with that made by mixing oatmeal or cornmeal or rice flour with water. If it is baked in this form, 
it makes a well-flavored, but rather tough, leathery sort of crust, so those races that use no leavening, or rising stuff, in their wheat bread, roll it out into very thin sheets and bake it on griddles or hot stones, most races that have wheat, however, have hit upon a plan for overcoming this heaviness and sogginess, and that is the rather ingenious one of mixing some substance in the dough which will give off bubbles of a gas, carbon dioxide, and cause it to puff up and become spongy and light, or, as we say, full of air, this is what gives bread its well-known spongy or porous texture, but the tiny cells and holes in it are filled, not with air, but with carbon dioxide gas, making bread with yeast, there are several ways of lightening bread with carbon dioxide gas, the oldest and commonest is by mixing in with the flour and water a small amount of the frothy mass made by a germ, or microbe, known as yeast or the yeast plant, then the dough is set away in a warm place, to arise, which means that the busy little yeast cells, eagerly attacking the rich supply of starchy food spread before them, and encouraged by the heat and moisture, multiply by millions and billions, and in the process of growing and multiplying, give off, like all other living cells, the gas, carbon dioxide, this bubbles and spreads all through the mass, the dough begins to arise, and finally swells right above the pan or crock in which it was set, if it is allowed to stand and rise too long, it becomes sour, because the yeast plant is forming, at the same time, three other substances alcohol, lactic acid which gives an acid taste to the bread, and vinegar, usually they form in such trifling amounts as to be quite unnoticeable, when the bread has become light enough, it is put into the oven to be baked, the baking serves the double purpose of cooking and thus making the starch appetizing, and of killing the yeast germs so that they will carry their fermentation no further, bread that has not been thoroughly baked, if it is kept too long, will turn sour, because some of the yeast germs that have escaped will set to work again, that part of the dough that lies on the surface of the loaf, and is exposed to the direct heat of the oven has its starch changed into a substance somewhat like sugar, known as dextrin, which, with the slight burning of the carbon, gives the outside, or crust, of bread its brownish color, its crispness, and its delicious taste, the crust is really the most nourishing part of the loaf, as well as the part that gives best exercise to the teeth, making bread with soda or baking powders, Another method of giving lightness to bread is by mixing an acid like sour milk and an alkali like soda with the flour, and letting them effervesce and give off carbon dioxide. This is the mixture used in making the famous soda biscuit. Still another method is by the use of baking powders, which are made of a mixture of some cheap and harmless acid powder with an alkaline powder usually some form of soda. As long as these powders are kept dry, they will not act upon each other, but as soon as they are moistened in the dough they begin to give off carbon dioxide gas. Neither sour milk and soda nor baking powder will make as thoroughly light and spongy and digestible bread as will yeast. If, however, baking powders are made of pure and harmless materials, used in proper proportions so as just to neutralize each other, and thus leave no excessive acid or alkali, and if the bread is baked very thoroughly, they make a wholesome and nutritious bread, which has the advantage of being very quickly and easily made. The chief objection to soda or baking powder bread is that, being often made in a hurry, the acid and the alkali do not get thoroughly mixed all through the flour, and consequently do not raise or lighten the dough properly, and the loaf or biscuit is likely to be heavy and soggy in the center. This heavy, soggy stuff can be neither properly chewed in the mouth, nor mixed with the digestive juices, and hence is difficult to digest. If, however, 
so the biscuits are made thin and baked thoroughly so as to make them at least half or two-thirds crust. They are perfectly digestible and wholesome, and furnish a valuable and appetizing variety for our breakfast and supper tables. Illustration, a basement bakery a menace to the public health disease germs multiply in the dark and damp of the basement. The clothing hanging up in this bakery is a very probable source of infection. Bran or brown bread, flour made by grinding the wheat berry without sifting the husks, or bran, out of it is called whole wheat meal, and bread made from it is the brown bran bread, or graham bread. It was at one time supposed that because brown bread contained more nitrogen than white bread, it was more wholesome and nutritious, but this has been found to be a mistake, because the extra nitrogen in the brown bread is in the form of husks and fibers, which the stomach is quite unable to digest. Wait for weight. White bread is more nutritious than brown. The husks and fibers, however, which will not digest, pass on through the bowels and change and stir up the walls of the intestines to contract, hence they are full in small quantities in helping to keep the bowels regular. But, like any other stimulus, too much of it will irritate and disturb the digestion, and cause diarrhea, so that it is not best to eat more than one-fifth of our total bread in the form of brown bread. Dyspeptics who live on brown bread, or on so-called health foods, are simply feeding their dyspepsia. Breakfast foods, the same defect exists in most of the breakfast cereals which flood our tables and decorate our billboards. Some of these are made of the waste of flouring mills, known as middlings, shorts, or bran, which were formerly used for cow feed. The claims of many of them are greatly exaggerated, for they contain no more nourishment, or in no more digestible form, than the same weight of bread, and they cost from two to five times as much, as they come on our tables. They are nearly seven-eighths water, and the cream and sugar taken with them are of higher food value than they are. They should never be relied upon as the main part of a meal. Cornmeal. Cornmeal is one of the richest meals in nutritive value for its price, as it has an abundance of starch and a small amount of fat. It island however, poor in nitrogen, and like the other grains, in countries where wheat will grow, it is chiefly valuable for furnishing cakes, fritters, and mushes to give variety to the diet and help to regulate the bowels. Oatmeal. Oatmeal comes the nearest to a wheat in the amount of nitrogen or protein, but the digestible part of this is much smaller than in wheat, and the indigestible portion is decidedly irritating to the bowels, so that if used in excess of about one-fifth of our total starch food required, it is likely to upset the digestion. Rye. Rye also contains a considerable amount of gluten but is much poorer in starch than wheat is, and the bread made out of its flour the so-called black bread of France and Germany is dark, sticky, and inclined to sour readily. Most of the right bread sold in the shops, or southeast, 